Chapter Twelve of I Will Repay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Sortzi. Chapter Twelve: The Sword of Damocles. In the name of the Republic, absorbed in his thoughts, his dreams, his present happiness, Deroulade had heard nothing of what was going on in the house during the past few seconds. At first, to Anne Mier, who was still singing her melancholy ditty over her work in the kitchen, there had seemed nothing unusual in the peremptory ring at the front door-bell. She pulled down her sleeves over her thin arms, smoothed down her cooking apron, then only did she run to see who the visitor might be. As soon as she had opened the door, however, she understood. Five men were standing before her, four of whom wore the uniform of the National Guard, and the fifth, the tricolor scarf fringed with gold, which denoted service under the convention. This man seemed to be in command of the others, and he immediately stepped into the hall, followed by his four companions, who, at a sign from him, effectively cut off Anne Mier from what had been her imminent purpose, namely, to run to the study and warn Deroulade of his danger. That it was danger of the most certain, the most deadly kind, she had never doubted for one moment. Even had her instinct not warned her, she would have guessed. One glance at the five men had sufficed to tell her, their attitude, their curt word of command, their air of authority as they crossed the hall— Everything revealed the purpose of their visit, a domiciliary search in the house of Citizen Deputy Deroulade. Merlin's law of the suspect was in full operation. Someone had denounced the Citizen Deputy to the Committee of Public Safety, and in this year of grace, 1793, and one of the Revolution, men and women were daily sent to the guillotine on suspicion. Amier would have screened, had she dared, but instinct such as hers was far too keen to betray her into so injudicious an act. She felt that, were Paul Deroulade's eyes upon her at this moment, he would wish her to remain calm and outwardly serene. The foremost man, he with the tricolor scarf, had already crossed the hall and was standing outside the study door. It was his word of command which first roused Deroulade from his dream. In the name of the Republic! Deroulade did not immediately drop the small hand, which a moment ago he had been covering with kisses. He held it to his lips once more, very gently lingering over this last fond caress, as if over an eternal farewell, then he straightened out his broad, well-knit figure, and turned to the door. He was very pale, but there was neither fear nor even surprise expressed in his earnest, deep-set eyes. They still seemed to be looking afar, gazing upon a heaven-born vision, which the touch of her hand and the avowal of his love had conjured up before him. In the name of the Republic! Once more, for the third time, according to custom, the words rang out, clear, distinct, peremptory. In that one fraction of a second, whilst those six words were spoken, Deroulade's eyes wandered swiftly towards the heavy letter-case, which now held his condemnation, and a wild, mad thought, the mere animal desire to escape from danger, surged up in his brain. The plans for the escape of Marie Antoinette, the various passports, worded in accordance with the possible disguises the unfortunate queen might assume, all these papers were more than sufficient proof of what would be termed his treason against the Republic. He could already hear the indictment against him, could see the filthy mob of Paris dancing a wild saraband round the tumbrel, which bore him towards the guillotine. He could hear their yells of execration, could feel the insults hurled against him by those who had most admired, most envied him, and from all this he would have escaped if he could, if it had not been too late. It was but a second or less, whilst the words were spoken outside the door, and whilst all other thoughts in him were absorbed in this one mad desire for escape. He even made a movement, as if to snatch up the letter-case and to hide it about his person. But it was heavy and bulky. It would be sure to attract attention, and might bring upon him the additional indignity of being forced to submit to a personal search. He caught Juliet's eyes fixed upon him with an intensity of gaze which, in that same one mad moment, 
revealed to him the depths of her love. Then the second's weakness was gone. He was once more quiet, firm, the man of action, accustomed to meet danger boldly, to rule and to subdue the most turgid mob. With a quiet shrug of the shoulders, he dismissed all thought of the compromising letter-case and went to the door. Already, as no reply had come to the third word of command, it had been thrown open from outside, and Desrilets found himself face to face with the five men. "'Citizen Merlin,' he said quietly, as he recognized the foremost among them. "'Himself, Citizen Deputy,' rejoined the latter with a sneer. "'At your service.' Anne Mier, in a remote corner of the hall, had heard the name, and felt her very soul sicken at its sound. Merlin, author of that infamous law of the suspect which had set man against man, a father against his son, brother against brother, and friend against friend, had made of every human creature a bloodhound on the track of his fellow-men, dogging in order not to be dogged, denouncing, spying, hounding, in order not to be denounced. And he, Merlin, gloried in this, the most fiendishly evil law ever perpetrated for the degradation of the human race. There is that sketch of him in the Musée Carnavale, drawn just before he, in his turn, went to expiate his crimes on that very guillotine, which he had sharpened and wielded so powerfully against his fellows. The artist has well caught the slouchy, slovenly look of this loosely-knit figure, his long limbs and narrow head, with the snake-like eyes and slightly receding chin. Like Marat, his model and prototype, Merlin affected dirty, ragged clothes. The real sanscalotism, the downward leveling of his fellow-men to the lowest rung of the social ladder, pervaded every action of this noted product of a great revolution. Even Desrilets, whose entire soul was filled with a great, all-understanding pity for the weaknesses of mankind, recoiled at sight of this incarnation of the spirit of squalor and degradation, of all that was left of the noble utopian theories of the makers of the revolution. Merlin grinned when he saw Desrilets standing there, calm, impassive, well-dressed, as if prepared to receive an honoured guest, rather than a summons to submit to the greatest indignity a proud man has ever been called upon to suffer. Merlin had always hated the popular citizen deputy. Friend and boon companion of Marat and his gang, he had for over two years now exerted all the influence he possessed in order to bring Desrilets under a cloud of suspicion. But Desrilets had the ear of the populace. No one understood, as he did, the tone of a Paris mob, and the National Convention, ever terrified of the volcano it had kindled, felt that a popular member of its assembly was more useful alive than dead. But now at last Merlin was having his way. An anonymous denunciation against Desrilets had reached the public prosecutor that day. Tinville and Merlin were the fastest of friends, so the latter easily obtained the privilege of being the first to proclaim to his hated enemy the news of his downfall. He stood facing Desrilets for a moment, enjoying the present situation to its full. The light from the vast hall struck upon the powerful figure of the citizen deputy, and upon his firm, dark face and magnetic, restless eyes. Behind him the study, with its closely drawn shutters, appeared wrapped in gloom. Merlin turned to his men, and, still delighted with his position of a cat playing with a mouse, he pointed to Desrilets, with a smile and a shrug of the shoulders. "'Vous êtes moi donc ça,' he said with a coarse jest, and expectorating contemptuously upon the floor. "'The aristocrat seems not to understand that we are here in the name of the Republic. There is a very good proverb, citizen deputy,' he added, once more addressing Desrilets, "'which you seem to have forgotten.' That is that the pitcher which goes too often to the well breaks at last. You have conspired against the liberties of the people for the past ten years. Retribution has come to you at last. The people of France have come to their senses. The National Convention wants to know what treason you are hatching between these four walls, and it has deputed me to find out all there is to know. At your service, Citizen Deputy, said Desrilets, 
quietly stepping aside in order to make way for Merlin and his men. Resistance was useless, and, like all strong, determined natures, he knew it was best to give in. During this while, Juliet had neither moved nor uttered a sound. Little more than a minute had elapsed since the moment when the first peremptory order, to open in the name of the Republic, had sounded like the tocsin through the stillness of the house. Deroulade's kisses were still hot upon her hand, his words of love were still ringing in her ears, and now this awful, deadly peril, which she with her own hand had brought on the man she loved. If in one moment's anguish the soul be allowed to expiate a lifelong sin, then indeed did Juliet atone during this one terrible second. Her conscience, her heart, her entire being rose in revolt against her crime. Her oath, her life, her final denunciation appeared before her in all their hideousness. And now it was too late. Deroulade stood facing Merlin, his most implacable enemy. The latter was giving orders to his men, preparatory to searching the house, and there, just on the top of the valise, lay the letter-case, obviously containing those papers, to which the day before she had overheard Deroulade making allusion, whilst he spoke to his friend Sir Percy Blakeney. An unexplainable instinct seemed to tell her that the papers were in that case. Her eyes were riveted to it, as if fascinated. An awful terror held her enthralled for one second more, whilst her thoughts, her longings, her desires were all centred on the safety of that one thing. The next instant she had seized it and thrown it upon the sofa. Then, sitting herself beside it, with the gesture of a queen and the grace of a Parisian, she had spread the ample folds of her skirts over the compromising case, hiding it entirely from view. Merlin in the hall was ordering two men to stand on each side of Deroulade, and two more men to follow him into the room. Now he entered it himself, his narrow eyes trying to pierce the semi-obscurity which was rendered more palpable by the brilliant light in the hall. He had not seen Juliet's gesture, but he had heard the frou-frou of her skirts, as she seated herself upon the sofa. "'You are not the lone citizen deputy, I see,' he said with a sneer, as his snake-like eyes lighted upon the young girl. "'My guest, Citizen Merlin,' replied Deroulade as calmly as he could. "'Citizen Juliette Marny, I know that it is useless, under these circumstances, to ask for a consideration for a woman, but I pray you to remember, as far as is possible, that although we are all Republicans, we are also Frenchmen, and all still equal in our sentiment of chivalry towards our mothers, our sisters, or our guests.' Merlin chuckled and gazed for a moment ironically at Juliet. He had held between his talon-like fingers, that very morning, a thin scrap of paper, on which a schoolgirlish hand had scrawled the denunciation against Citizen Deputy Deroulade. Coarse in nature, and still coarser in thoughts, this representative of the people had very quickly arrived at a conclusion in his mind, with regard to this so-called guest in the Deroulade household. A discarded mistress, he muttered to himself. "'Just had another scene, I suppose. He's got tired of her, and she's given him way out of spite.' Satisfied with his explanation of the situation, he was quite inclined to be amiable to Juliet. Moreover, he had caught sight of the valise, and almost thought that the young girl's eyes had directed his attention towards it. "'Open those shutters,' he commanded. "'This place is like a vault.' One of the men obeyed immediately, and as the brilliant August sun came streaming into the room, Merlin once more turned to Deroulade. "'Information has been laid against you, Citizen Deputy,' he said, "'by an anonymous writer, who states that you have just now in your possession "'correspondence or other papers intended for the widow Capet, "'and the Committee of Public Safety has entrusted me and these citizens "'to see such correspondence, and make you answerable for its presence in your house.' Deroulade hesitated for one brief fraction of a second. As soon as the shutters had been opened, and the room flooded in daylight, he had at once perceived that his letter-case had disappeared— 
and guessed, from Juliet's attitude upon the sofa, that she had concealed it about her person. It was this which caused him to hesitate. His heart was filled with boundless gratitude to her for her noble effort to save him, but he would have given his life at this moment to undo what she had done. The terrorists were no respecters of persons or of sex. A domiciliary search order, in those days, conferred full powers on those in authority, and Juliet might, at any moment now, be peremptorily ordered to rise. Through her action she had made herself one with the citizen deputy. If the case were founded under the folds of her skirts, she would be accused of connivance, or at any rate of the equally grave charge of shielding a traitor. The manly pride in him rebelled at the thought of owing his immediate safety to a woman, yet he could not now discard her help, without compromising her irretrievably. He dared not even to look again towards her, for he felt that at this moment her life as well as his own lay in the quiver of an eyelid, and Merlin's keen, narrow eyes were fixed upon him in eager search for a tremor, a flash which might betray fear or prove an admission of guilt. Juliet sat there, calm, impassive, disdainful, and she seemed to Derelade more angelic, more unattainable even than before. He could have worshipped her for her heroism, her resourcefulness, her quiet aloofness from all these coarse creatures who filled the room with the odour of their dirty clothes, with their rough jests, and their noisome suggestions. "'Well, citizen deputy,' sneered Merlin after a while, "'you do not reply, I notice.' "'The insinuation is unworthy of a reply, citizen,' replied Derelade quietly. "'My services to the Republic are well known. I should have thought that the Committee of Public Safety would disdain an anonymous denunciation against a faithful servant of the people of France.' "'The Committee of Public Safety knows its own business best, citizen deputy,' rejoined Merlin roughly. "'If the accusation prove a calumny, so much the better for you, I presume,' he added with a sneer, "'that you do not propose to offer any resistance whilst these citizens and I search your house.' Without another word, Derelade handed a bunch of keys to the man by his side. Every kind of opposition, argument even, would be worse than useless. Merlin had ordered the valise and desk to be searched, and two men were busy turning out the contents of both onto the floor, but the desk now only contained a few private household accounts, and notes for the various speeches which Derelade had at various times delivered in the assemblies of the National Convention. Among these, a few pencil jottings for his great defense of Charlotte Corday were eagerly seized upon by Merlin, and his grimy, claw-like hands fastened upon the scrap of paper, as upon a welcome prey. But there was nothing else of any importance. Derelade was a man of thought and of action, with all the enthusiasm of real conviction, but none of the carelessness of a fanatic. The papers which were contained in the letter-case, and which he was taking with him to the conciergerie, he considered were necessary to the success of his plans, otherwise he never would have kept them, and they were the only proofs that could be brought up against him. The valise itself was only packed with a few necessities for a month's sojourn at the conciergerie, and the men, under Moline's guidance, were vainly trying to find something, anything that might be construed into treasonable correspondence with the unfortunate prisoner there. Merlin, whilst his men were busy with the search, was sprawling in one of the big leather-covered chairs, on the arms of which his dirty fingernails were beating an impatient devil's tattoo. He was at no pains to conceal the intense disappointment which he would experience, were his errand to prove fruitless. His narrow eyes every now and then wandered towards Juliet, as if asking for her help and guidance. She, understanding his frame of mind, responded to the look. Shutting her mentality off from the coarse suggestion of his attitude towards her, she played her part with cunning and without flinching. With a glance here and there, she directed the men in their search. Derelade himself could scarcely refrain from looking at her. 
He was puzzled, and vaguely marvelled at the perfection with which she carried through her role to the end. Merlin found himself baffled. He knew quite well that the citizen deputy Deroulade was not a man to be lightly dealt with. No mere suspicion or anonymous denunciation would be sufficient in his case to bring him before the tribunal of the revolution. Unless there were proofs, positive, irrefutable, damnable proofs, of Paul Deroulade's treachery, the public prosecutor would never dare to frame an indictment against him. The mob of Paris would rise to defend its idol. The hideous hags, who plied their knitting at the foot of the scaffold, would tear the guillotine down before they would allow Deroulade to mount it. This was Deroulade's stronghold, the people of Paris, whom he had loved through all their infamies, and whom he had succored and helped in their private need, and above all the women of Paris, whose children he had caused to be tended in the hospitals which he had built for them, this they had not yet forgotten, and Merlin knew it. One day they would forget, soon perhaps, then they would turn on their formal idol, and howling, send him to his death, amidst cries of rancor and execration. When that day came, there would be no need to worry about treason or about proofs. When the populace had forgotten all that he had done, then Deroulet would fall. But that time was not yet. The men had finished ransacking the room. Every scrap of paper, every portable article had been eagerly seized upon. Merlin, half-blind with fury, had jumped to his feet. "'Search him!' he ordered peremptorily. Deroulet set his teeth and made no protest, calling up every fibre of moral strength within him to aid him in submitting to this indignity. At a coarse jest from Merlin, he buried his hands into the palms of his hand, not to strike the foul-mouthed creature in the face. But he submitted, and stood impassive by, whilst the pockets of his coat were turned inside out by the rough hands of the soldiers. All the while Juliet had remained silent, watching Merlin as any hawk would its prey. But the terrorist, through the very coarseness of his nature, was in this case completely fooled. He knew that it was Juliet who had denounced Aerolade, and had satisfied himself as to her motive. Because he was low and brutish and degraded, he never once suspected the truth, never saw in that beautiful young woman anything of the double nature within her, of that curious, self-torturing, at times morbid sense of religion and of duty, at war with her own upright, innately healthy disposition. The low-born, self-degraded terrorist had put his own construction on Juliet's action, and with this he was satisfied, since it answered to his own estimate of the human race, the race which he was doing his best to bring down to the level of the beast. Therefore Merlin did not interfere with Juliet, but contented himself with insinuating, by jest and action, what her share in this day's work had been. To these hints Deroulade, of course, paid no heed. For him, Juliet was as far above political intrigue as the angels. He would as soon have suspected one of the saints enshrined in Notre Dame as this beautiful, almost ethereal creature, who had been sent by heaven to gladden his heart and to elevate his very thought. But Juliet understood Merlin's attitude, and guessed that her written denunciation had come into his hands. Her every thought, her living sensation within her, was centered in this one thing, to save the man she loved from the consequences of her own crime against him. And for this, even the shadow of suspicion must be removed from him. Merlin's iniquitous laws should not touch him again. When Deroulade had at last been released, after the outrage to which he had been personally subjected, Merlin was literally, and figuratively too, looking about him for an issue to his present dubious position. Judging others by his own standard of conduct, he feared now that the popular citizen deputy would incite the mob against him, in revenge for the indignities which he had had to suffer. And with it all the terrorist was convinced that Deroulade was guilty, that proofs of his treason did exist, if only he knew where to lay hands on them. He turned to Juliet with an unexpressed query in his adder-like eyes. She shrugged her shoulders, and made a gesture as if pointing towards the door. 
"'There are other rooms in the house besides this,' her gesture seemed to say. "'Try them. The proofs are there. Tis for you to find them.' Merlin had been standing between her and Deroulade, so that the latter saw neither query nor reply. "'You are cunning, citizen deputy,' said Merlin now, turning towards him. "'And no doubt you have been at pains to put your treasonable correspondence out of the way.' You must understand that the Committee of Public Safety will not be satisfied with the mere examination of your study, he added, assuming an air of ironical benevolence, and I presume you will have no objection if I and these citizen soldiers pay a visit to other portions of your house. As you please, responded Desrelais dryly. You will accompany us, citizen deputy, commanded the other curtly. The four men of the National Guard formed themselves into line outside the study door. With a peremptory nod, Merlin ordered Desrelais to pass between them. Then he too prepared to follow. At the door he turned and once more faced Juliet. "'As for you, citizeness,' he said with a sudden access of viciousness against her, "'if you have brought us here on a fool's errand, it will go ill with you, remember. Do not leave the house until our return. I may have some questions to put to you.'" End chapter 12